Bibles, if you would, please, and open them up to Revelation chapter 13. And this evening we're returning to this multi-part sermon that I've been preaching on the Antichrist. And of course, we're talking about things that are going to happen when God decides that this world is going to wind down and he's going to bring everything to a close. What we're studying here is the work of God as he purges the world from the curse and he prepares for an everlasting kingdom of righteousness to come upon the earth. This is actually God's final judgment upon the earth and on Satan and evil. And what we're reading about is the accomplishment of God's plan and his purposes. Now included in God's plan is just this amazing story that we read in the book of Revelation. Uh, The book of Revelation is the set up, so to speak, to prove to the world one last and final time that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, He is King of all, and all of His creatures must bow down to worship Him. And included in this story is this part that we have about Satan and about this person who is called the Antichrist. God has His Christ and Satan has His Antichrist. And with all the power and the majesty and authority that the Christ has, Uh, Satan tries to match that with his own deceiver and someone who tries to even take the place of Christ in the world. God allows the Antichrist to deceive the world and he allows Satan to show his power to its greatest degree. And so what Satan does in the end times is he invests this particular person, uh, all the power that he can give him, uh, all the miracles that he can allow him to perform, he vests all that in this person called the Antichrist. But in the end... And all of us here, we do know the story of the end. In the end, all of the power of Satan and the Antichrist really amount to nothing more than a speck compared to the power and the majesty of God. If I wanted to use a juvenile anthropomorphic expression, I would say that God flicks him off like a booger. That's what I would say. That's not very dignified, is it? Well, the beginning of chapter 13 is a digression in this story, and we're backing up a little bit to get a look at someone who's already been uh, uh, revealed to us or one who's already announced in a previous chapter. If you go back to chapter 6 in the beginning of that chapter, you find there what's commonly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And there are four riders that come out on different horses. And the very first one is a rider who comes out on a white horse. And in Revelation chapter 6, verse number 2, it says, And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. That is a description of the Antichrist. He is a conqueror. He appears as a white knight, one who has all the answers to the world's problems, But really, this is a man who is no friend to man. He's actually the spawn of the devil. I want to read about him in Revelation chapter 13. So if you'd stand with me as we read God's word. Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse number 1. And we've read these verses a couple of times already. But just to get our bearings and see where we are, we'll we'll read them again. Beginning in verse number 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now I'll stop right there and 
just catch everybody up for just a moment who we're talking about here. Uh, the beast that rises up out of the sea is the Antichrist. And the dragon, of course, refers to Satan. Verse number four, and they worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast and who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have to spend around your word tonight. And Lord, we just pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of this passage. Help us to understand a little bit better things that are coming And then, Lord, may we also, as your people, warn those who are around us of a terrible day of calamity for people who don't know Christ as Savior. Bless us during this time tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Most of you are aware that in these multi-part messages, uh, everything fits together. And so it's necessary for us to go back just a little bit and to gather ourselves once again and talk about some things that we have already uh, spoken about in the first parts of the message. Now, I want to do that again tonight, but I don't really want to take a lot of time doing this. And so if you're here and you haven't heard uh, the first parts of the message, you're welcome to listen to those on the Internet or our sound people back there would be happy to give you a copy, uh, get you a copy of the CDs of the previous messages. But we began this by talking about the prophecy of the beast. A revelation, of course, is prophecy. And what we're reading about tonight takes place sometime in the future. And we don't know exactly when this will occur because the Bible says that there are not going to be any warning sounds that are announced. The coming of the Antichrist is attached to the coming of the Christ. And he can't come until Christ has returned in the clouds to take his children home, to call his church out of this world and take them to heaven with him. Uh, Jesus said that no man knows the day or the hour that he's coming back. He says that you can't discern the season. He says only the Heavenly Father knows that information. And so since we can't know when the coming of the Christ is, then neither can we know the coming of the Antichrist. Now the only thing that we do know is that when Christ comes, all of the events that we're reading here will be set into motion and they will proceed very rapidly. Over a seven-year period, the Antichrist will appear and then he will disappear. And then approximately 1,007 years after Christ has come back to the earth, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And then all the things that we're talking about here will be just a distant memory as the people of God spend their time in eternity. But Revelation is a prophecy, and my point here is to uh, make mention that the first time that we see the Antichrist is not what we read here in Revelation. It's not just a New Testament doctrine, but we can go back into the Old Testament and we can find quite a bit there that's written about the Antichrist. Particularly, we can go to the book of Daniel, and in Daniel's prophecy, he has quite a bit to say about it. And so, 
the Antichrist was predicted by Daniel before the actual coming of the Christ. Christ had not come yet in his first advent. And here was Daniel already predicting the coming of the Antichrist. So what we're looking at then is not just a New Testament revelation. It's also found in the Old Testament. And so if you have people who say, well, there's just not enough information in the Bible about this. What we have written about it is in the book of Revelation, and that's very cryptic, and we can't understand that very well. And so we need not to be really worried about this, but the Bible has much to say about the subject. Reaching back into the Old Testament, it tells about it there. And then when we come into the New Testament, Revelation is not the only place that we find this. Jesus also spoke about it. The Apostle Paul spoke about it. And even John, before he was given this last revelation, the last inspiration of the Spirit to write the book of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, he had already spoken about this subject. There is this person called the Antichrist. And so then what we did was to look at the Old Testament passages and some that are in the New that give us a little bit more information about him. Then the next thing that we talked about was the parentage of the beast, or the Antichrist. And we talked about where he came from, and we discussed the source of his power in the past, and the alliances of power that he makes in the future. And John gives us a very remarkable testimony of him in this second verse in chapter 13. And he relates him or compares him to a leopard, a bear, and a lion. And what those are are Old Testament references, and it refers to the former world kingdoms. Looking back first at the Grecian Empire that was ruled by Alexander the Great, and then the empire just before that was the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the one previous to that one was the Babylonian Empire in which Daniel lived. And so those are references then to the Old Testament and these former world powers. And the beast kingdom, according to Scripture, is made up of pieces of those former empires. And then if we go over into chapter 17, we find there that the Roman Empire is also a part of that list. And the future kingdom of the beast will be a revived Roman Empire. And then he'll make his alliances with all these different world governments and then governments that are coming in the future as well. And all of those governments and all of those different countries become his domain. And he'll control all people groups except for one. And that's the elect or the remnant of Israel that God will call out and he'll save those and they will be the seed of the millennial kingdom. Now, many of those people will be killed. In fact, I believe that probably most of them will be killed before the millennial reign of Christ. But then Christ comes and he will set up uh, a kingdom upon this earth. Now, thirdly, then, we talked about the power of the beast. And uh, there we discussed a little bit more of his political alliances. And we discussed how that, strangely, his power comes from Satan. But the ultimate power of the Antichrist actually comes from God. And that may seem like a strange statement for me to make, but the Antichrist can't do anything that God doesn't allow. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that aspect of it when we get to the fourth part of this series. And so we'll save that for a little bit later time and help you to understand that a little bit better. But in the immediate context of this, his power comes from Satan. And so when John sees the beast rising out of the sea and he sees it with all of these heads, those are the previous world kingdoms, including also the revived Roman Empire. And the horns that he sees on the beast are all the different political alliances of future kingdoms that will be in power during the tribulation period. But the main thing to remember about all of that is that this is a coalition 
of governments like the world has never seen before. The world uh, governments give up their individual identities. Country gives, countries give up their individual governments. And they all line up together against Christ and against his people. And they're all led by this one person in one world government. So those are the subjects that we've talked about so far. The prophecy, the parentage, and the power of the beast. Now this evening I want to move on to discuss the fourth part of this, which is the personality of the beast. We know what his parentage is. We know that he comes from the lineage of the devil. And I do believe that we're talking about a literal man. And as I said last week, I don't think that this is a person who died and then went to hell and somehow was resurrected. But I think that he's a person who has a human mother and a human father. So that means that you might want to look very closely to the person sitting next to you because they may have potential to be the person we're talking about. Uh, But he's a very charismatic man. Uh, most charismatic person that the world has ever seen. And he's the type of person that's really captivating. People like to listen to him. They're just simply mesmerized by the sound of his voice. They just love to hear him speak because he's comforting and he's reassuring. Uh, The world has seen all the worst of calamities that God can bring upon it, or so they think. And they've also seen the things that Satan has done, even though they've been greatly fooled by all the things that he's done. And so here comes a man who seems to have all the answers and can give everybody exactly what they want. Now, I think that we need to see first about him that he is attractive. He's a very attractive person. The world is attracted to him. And uh, by the world, I don't mean that some of the world is attracted to him. I mean, believe all the world is attracted to him, Not uh, with the exception of those we said are believers in Christ. There's no one who stops short of following this man to the very ends of the earth. And so when he comes on the scene, he comes with solutions to the economic chaos that has occurred. He comes with a plan where he helps people, where he puts a chicken in every pot. And everybody says, well, this is the guy. I mean, this is the one that we need to follow. He has all the answers. And he might be as green as a gourd politically, but that really doesn't matter because he's attractive. People are drawn to him. Everything about him is interesting in sort of a sick kind of way. Uh, There's a reference to him in Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, that lends support to the idea that he possibly could be a homosexual. Now, the verse reads in Daniel 11, verse 37, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, there the Scripture says he doesn't desire women. That could mean that... He loves himself so much that he doesn't really need women, that he's all that anybody ever needed, and so he doesn't need anybody either. But it really could mean that he is a homosexual. And you think about this, and you see how that things have changed so much in the past few years that uh, at no other time in recent history could someone like this have ever come into power and could really captivate people. I mean, just a few years ago, uh, homosexuality was in the closet. Nobody was talking about that. It was a hidden thing. Now it's all out in the open, and there are people who applaud it, and they promote it. And in a country such as ours today, that uh, the United States, that used to be somewhat God-fearing, there's no fear at all of God in that area. In fact, the Bible tells us that God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah for such wicked sin And yet the lesson that was taught to those people has been lost on people in America today. So I don't know if he's going to be a homosexual. If he is, it's not going to be any deterrent to his rise of power. In fact, I think it might even help him the way that things are going today. But in his attractiveness, he personifies sin. 
People love sin. And that's why man and his human nature will never come to Christ. See, the more that you can sin with impunity or without retribution, then the more that people like that. Now, the thing about it is, in reading the story, we find that there's been retribution all over the place. God is raining, out, raining down his vengeance upon the world, but people are so blinded by the powers of deception of the devil that they can't see it. And so they continue to go deeper and deeper into sin. Now, I want you to turn to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 for just a moment. Uh, keep your finger in this text, and we're going to look at a few verses here in Second Thessalonians. Uh, we read these a couple of weeks ago and referred to them before, and I said we would need to come back to this again. And we find here just a little bit of a look at his attractiveness. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse number 3, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now here Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, and these are saved people. And so he says to them, let no man deceive you. And the purpose of that statement is to show them that the events that he's about to describe have not yet occurred. Although there is apostasy at all times and in all places in the world, yet this is a kind of apostasy that the world has never seen before. What he's about to describe has never happened to the world before. This is a very special time that he's talking about here. Now we notice here how he describes the Antichrist. And his very first description of him is that he is the man of sin. He is a man of sin. Now, that has more than one implication, but surely we can see this, that sin is the character of this guy. He's the worst of all. You take all the world rulers that have been so evil and caused so much damage to people today or and all that throughout the history of the world, you take Nero and Domitian and Caligula and all those uh, Roman emperors that... It lived in the time of John and the early disciples. And you take Hitler, who was just a few years ago, and take Hefner, if you want to as well. He's not a leader, but he he could fit into this crowd. He may be a homosexual. He may be a hedonist. He may be a humanist. He is really a man that's totally driven by sin. Now, here is a verse that says that a great falling away will occur. Now, what that can mean is nothing other than a worldwide rejection of Christianity. Now, what happens when you reject Christianity? Well, obviously, there's nothing but sin that can follow. A few weeks ago, Parade Magazine had a, a poll in which they said that 59% of Americans believe that all religions are valid. Now, do you know what that means? Now, you, you may not really realize this or not. Some people don't, I suppose. It means that 59% of Americans actually reject Christianity as valid. And that's because Christianity says that there are no other religions that are valid. Christianity doesn't permit other paths to God. And so as soon as you say that there are other paths, you invalidate Christianity as one of those paths. And so if 59% of Americans believe that, is it any wonder that this culture that we're living in is really a cesspool? And you know how much worse it even gets than that? Because we can even talk about religion in the United States today. I mean, we've already talked about that piece of it. Uh, 59% of Americans that that don't believe that uh, Christ is the only way to God, uh, the only way that a person can be saved. And we look at the rest of religion as what they think about this, and you look at what Billy Graham has said, and you look at what Rick Warren says, and uh, there are two men that, you know, actually patted Mother Teresa on the back. 
Now, this is not a popular thing for me to say, but they patted uh, Mother Teresa on the back and called her a fine example of Christianity. Now, she might have been a fine example of humanity, but she certainly was not a fine example of Christianity. And the reason that I say that is because she was guilty of mixing Eastern mysticism in with the worship of the one true God. And that is something that God would never permit, even from the very beginning. He would not allow that. You can't mix God with any other kind, the true God, with any other kind of religion. But nominal Christianity is attracted to sin, and they're attracted to rejection of the true God. And it comes in many different forms. There are many sweet little preachers that you hear today, and it culminates in the very highest expression in this person who is called the man of sin. And so whenever you see 35,000 people that cram into an arena week after week to hear Joel Osteen preach a false gospel, then you know that the man of sin could not be very far behind. But people flock after that. They're attracted to all of that because it's satisfying. It's exactly what people want to hear. And so we see that the Antichrist is not afraid of religion. He's not trying to make atheists out of anybody. He's happy with religion. In fact, religion helps him get his start. And I think that false Christianity is probably his biggest fan club. Now, we notice here in verses 8 through 10 in 2 Thessalonians 2, it says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Deceived and unrighteous and don't love the truth. All of that's speaking about religion. Verses 11 and 12. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So the Antichrist is very attractive and he gives people what they want. He has an empire that's not against vice, He doesn't enforce any kind of moral restraint. There are no laws on the books that will limit man's vices. In verse number 7, that text says that the Holy Spirit that restrains wickedness in the world today, the Holy Spirit that really, in one sense of the word, protects us from ourselves. The Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the world. He'll pull back and he will allow man to fill up his pleasures of sin to the full. So no wonder that they're attracted to this man. People love sin, and he gives it to them in the, in the worst degree. And so it's not, not really a far stretch to see how the world is even itching today for the revelation of the Antichrist. I mean, look at America. Uh, we stopped a long time ago looking for morality in our leaders, haven't we? It really doesn't make any difference to us anymore what a person is morally and uh, how he acts and things that he does. We stopped looking for those kind of qualities and political candidates. And America today uh, fusses and, and just gets all upset if we, if we look for a, a Supreme Court candidate and use an anti-abortion stance as a litmus test, then all of us just completely fall apart anymore if we look for somebody like that. And the reason is because we cannot get our fill of sin. We're against God. That's the way the natural heart of man is. And it's amazing that in this world of sin and depravity, of God-haters and whoremongers, 
that preachers will come along with a gospel that says that man has the ability to stop all of that, that all that you really need to do is just stop sinning, turn around and trust Christ. It's just a decision that you make. It's not any different really than having a hamburger or chicken for lunch. It's just a decision. Well, let's go on here. He is, a, he is a very attractive person because he invites everybody to sin to their heart's desire. Now, he may be handsome physically, and he may be debonair. He may be physically attractive. So you can go back, and you may be able to rule out that person that's sitting next to you because the only person who qualifies is the preacher, and I don't think he's going to be the, the Antichrist. The second thing we see about him is that he is astonishing. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 says he comes with power and signs and lying wonders. Now, do you see that? It says lying wonders. And when we put that in there, now we've just thrown in a whole different batch of candidates. Lying wonders. And what the Bible is talking about there is someone who comes along and is able to show us some kind of religious things, some kind of religious wonders that stupefy us and defy our imagination. So we add in a whole other bunch of candidates. Who could be the Antichrist? Well, is Benny Hinn the Antichrist? I don't know. Oral Roberts, is that the Antichrist? Catherine Kuhlman, was she the Antichrist? Was William Branham the Antichrist? No, not the Antichrist. They were just... But they just put the little a in abomination. Those are little antichrist. But here is one who comes with power and amazement that's much greater than any of those. All the rest of those are just little religious hucksters. And this is the biggest one of all time. The biggest Houdini the world's ever seen. Now let's go back to our text then, Revelation 13, verse 3. It says, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, we talked about that deadly wound last time, so I'm not going to get into it uh, too much now. But there are some who think that that refers to a false resurrection, that perhaps the Antichrist fakes his death, and then mysteriously he rises from the dead. Well, Satan is a counterfeiter, we know that, and wouldn't you think that the Antichrist then would do something like this, that he would actually mimic the resurrection and the power of Christ to be raised from the dead. You think about what happens towards the end of the tribulation period. We go back to chapter 11 and we read there about those two witnesses that come and they speak in the power of God and the Antichrist does everything that he can to try to kill those two witnesses. But God protects them and for three and a half years they begin to preach the word of God and the Antichrist has no power against them at all. But then God says that their time is up and God uh, says, removes his protection from them, and so the Antichrist then is able to kill them. So people are just dancing in the streets, and they're so thrilled that these two witnesses of God are killed. The Bible says that they uh, start to party, and they send gifts to one another. And then three and a half days after those two men died, something happened, and that is they were resurrected from the dead. They got up. They ascended into heaven. And while everybody was looking, there was this great earthquake that occurred. And so people are standing there and they're watching this and they're scratching their heads. No doubt people can see it all over the world, what's taking place. Uh, satellite pictures beam this all over the world and people are looking at that and they're saying, wow, what a magnificent thing that is. What power that is. I wonder if our hero has that much power. And so the Antichrist, not to be outdone, may stage something. And it may look like he is able to... Uh, have a resur- uh, maybe have a resurrection, even as Christ was resurrected. Now, I don't know about that. Uh, I think that most likely the deadly 
a wound that was healed refers to the Roman Empire and that the empire will be revived. But I can't tell you for sure that the other is not the case. I do know this, that Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 24, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now that is Jesus' way of saying that the Antichrist is so astonishing, he has such signs and wonders, that if it was possible, he would deceive the very elect of God. And so that deception is so powerful that the only thing that saves the elect is the fact that they are God's elect. Now, God exercises his power to protect his people, and the only way that they keep from falling prey to Satan's devices is because of God's power. And I'll tell you something, the same thing is true today. The only thing that keeps you as a believer from falling out of your belief and and falling out of your salvation and falling prey to the lies of the devil is the power of God. God won't let you fall. Jude said that. He said he is able to keep us from falling. Peter said that we're kept by faith. And the word that Peter used is a word that means garrisoned about. It's just like having a a, a platoon of soldiers surrounding you and protecting you on all sides. And then also Jesus talked about that, and he said that we're held in his hand. And he said not only are we held in his hand, but we're also in the Father's hand. And the picture that Jesus was trying to give the people was that he holds us in his hand and it's just like the Heavenly Father cups his hand over the hand of Jesus so that we're protected. We could never lose our salvation. But a person who is an unbeliever has no such protection from God. There's no way that he can resist the power of the devil. And so these people swallow the lies of the devil hook, line, and sinker. And there may be people today that would say, well, I'd never fall for such a thing as that. I'd never believe anything like that. You have no idea how powerful the devil is. Without Jesus Christ, you'll fall for it just like everyone else. Now, let me read this from verse, uh, this verse from 2 Thessalonians 2 again. It says, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. You know, that is a very troubling verse for many people. They read that and... There are so many people who think that, well, what God would do, God will turn backflips to keep anybody from going to hell. And so they can't possibly believe that the Bible would say something like this, that God himself should send strong delusion so that someone could believe a lie. And we notice there, though, that it doesn't say that God creates in people a heart of unbelief. They've already got that. It says that he sends them strong delusion so that they believe the lie. And did you know this, that if God did not actively stop your unbelief, that you would never be saved? You'd never trust him unless God did a work in your heart to prevent your unbelief. You see, the Bible teaches that faith is a gift from God, and God gives faith or withholds faith as he pleases. And the scriptures also say that God grants repentance. And since not everybody repents, it must mean that God has only granted granted repentance to some. Now, there's some that, uh, that... That's very hard for them to swallow because what they're always trying to do is to vindicate God and trying to make God nice on their terms. But God doesn't do anything on our terms. He does them on his terms. See, the idea that people have is that man deserves salvation. And they'll teach that, well, this everybody deserves a chance to be saved. But the truth of the matter is there's nobody who deserves a chance to be saved. And not only that, as I've told you many times before, salvation is not by chance anyway. God sends strong delusion. And you better figure out how you're going to make that fit into your theology, or you better get some new theology, because that's what the Scripture says. 
See, the only book that we have to read to learn about God is the Bible. It's the only thing that we have. How God operates is revealed to us in the Bible. And this seems clear enough to me. So he is attractive. He is astonishing. He's adept at telling lies. And so people believe everything that he says. But what does that lead to? Well, thirdly, he is adorable. And by that, I mean that he's lovable. Now, remember, he's a counterfeiter. He imitates Christ. What do the scriptures say about Christ? One of my favorite scriptures is in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I preached a message from this uh, once, and the great Puritan preacher John Flavel had an excellent, just an outstanding sermon on this text. And I read the, his sermon, and I, I really thought it was just too good to pass up. And so I, I uh, brought out some points in the sermon on the same text, uh, some things that John Flavel said. But Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. John Flavel preached a sermon on that text and called it the desire of all nations. And of course, he was speaking about the Christ, not speaking of the Antichrist. Christ is adorable. Christ is lovable. And when his people are brought into his kingdom, Christ becomes their only desire. People from every kindred, tribe, and nation bow down and they worship him because he is their desire. John wrote that in Revelation 5 verse 9. He said, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou hast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Christ is the desire of people in his kingdom. But what is the Antichrist again? He's a deceiver. He's a counterfeiter. And in his kingdom, he is the desire of all nations. Now look at verse 4 in Revelation 13. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So they worship him and they adore him. They can't get enough of him. Back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it said again, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, we're not talking here about your everyday garden variety, Jim Jones or Reverend Moon. We're speaking about someone who is so deceptive that he's able to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple and the Jews begin to sing his praises and they get all their sacrifices together again and they begin to offer all those sacrifices that for so many years, for thousands of years, they haven't been able to offer. And what this man, the Antichrist, does, he allows it to happen, but then he pushes all of that away and then he becomes God. And so Scripture says that he goes into the temple and he installs, installs himself there as God to the acclaims of the whole world. And so they adore him and they worship him. They fall down before him and they say, who is like him? Who can compare to him? And that is deceit of the highest magnitude because this is exactly the same thing that Israel said when they were worshiping true Jehovah God. Israel said, who is like our God? And in truth, they worshipped him because they saw his mighty works and they knew that he, they were God's people. 
But now the Antichrist mimics even that. And he becomes their God. And they begin to sing praises to him. The same praises that Israel in former times gave to Jehovah. Who is like him? Who can make war with him? And when you look at that, is it any wonder that God sends strong delusion? This is like Antiochus Epiphanes when he went into the temple and he offered that sow on the altar of God. Only this time, people bow down and they worship the sow. In verse 8 of chapter 13, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so they worship him. Why? Because their names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, we're going to get to that book a little bit later on, and I plan to spend a little bit of time talking about the names that are written down. But this is the personality of the Antichrist. He is attractive, he is astonishing, he is adorable. He is the A in abomination, and that is a capital A in abomination. And I want to warn you about something before I close tonight, as if there hasn't already been plenty to warn you. Who is the power behind all of this? Well, we said that the immediate power is Satan. He's the one who gives power and authority to this person who is called the beast. But my warning to you tonight is that Satan is not a future creature. Now, the Antichrist, he's coming sometime in the future, but Satan is not a future creature. He's been around this world for a long, long time. He's perfected powers of deception, and he's here right now, and he will be around until God sinks him forever into the pit of hell. Satan doesn't have to wait on the Antichrist to come in order to deceive you. He blinds people. The Scripture says that even right now, that he blinds people to the gospel of Christ. He tells his lies right now. The Apostle John said, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. Now, pay attention again to that Scripture. Many deceivers, many entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, let me ask you, did God come to earth in the form of a man? Did God actually do that? Well, did you know, again, that 59% of Americans say no? They say that there are other paths to God, and so that automatically excludes Jesus Christ. And you know why? Because it means that Jesus lied. It means that he is a fallible man. He didn't tell the truth. And so when Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except by me, 59% of Americans say that Jesus told a lie. Let me ask you something. Are you in that 59%? If Jesus breaks through the skies tonight, at least 59% of Americans will be left behind. Satan has deceived a minimum of 59% of Americans. And you know, want to know something else? I think the majority, the 41% that are left over, really didn't even understand the question. <laughs> Satan doesn't have to wait for the Antichrist to come to deceive. He's done a remarkable job already. You can see it in our nation today. 59% of Americans who call Jesus a liar. There are other paths to God. And friend, I want to tell you, if you haven't trusted Christ, the best thing that you could possibly do right now is to get down on your knees and plead for God's mercy to save your unworthy soul. There's no way that anybody's going to get out of this unless they believe in Jesus Christ. Because as he said, he is the only way to the Father. You need not look for anyone else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've looked into your word tonight. 
and what warnings that we receive and how we ought to be ever so much aware of the deceit of the devil and how he blinds people's heart to the gospel today. People who call themselves Christian claim that they know you and yet they have no idea who the God of this Bible really is. Whenever people can say that they believe that there are other ways that a person can be saved, that there are different ways that we can get to God, there are many paths in order for a person to get to heaven, then they're denying the very God of this Bible, and that is not Christian. Lord, I pray that you would speak to people's hearts and you would show them the gospel of Christ and show them they must believe in Jesus because there is no other way that will escape all of these things that come upon the world. So, Lord, we pray that you bless our people tonight as we sing and draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.